Bibles tonight, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is one of our familiar Lord's Supper texts. The others are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this evening, what I want to do is to uh, take you back to a study that we were doing about six years ago in our church statement of faith. Many of you were not here at that time, and so I know that you didn't hear any of the messages that I gave on the statement of faith, and the ones of you that were here, you've forgotten them all anyway. So we're, we're going to go back to uh, the statement of faith, and what I did was I, I, I preached on each article that was in our statement of faith, and um, it's, these are the things that we believe as a church, and as we were going through that, it was at the same time an exhilarating study, but it was also an excruciating one. Uh, it was an exhilarating one because many people were very happy to finally know exactly what the statement of faith meant. And then it was an excruciating one because there are many who didn't agree with it when they found out what it meant. And uh, so they weren't very, very happy. And, and uh, you don't really have to worry about those folks because they're no longer with us. They won't be here tonight. But one of the controversial topics that we did study was our belief about the Lord's Supper. I don't think that this particular subject is one that really made anyone upset, uh, but it was surprising to some people to to look into the Scriptures and to see why uh, the reasoning that's behind what we believe what we do. Now, we do believe that every doctrine that is in the Word or, or doctrine that we teach has to be supported by the Scriptures, and so we do go for the Scriptures for support. So I, I don't have any fear about anything that I'm going to preach to you tonight. So I'm going to go back to this message that I uh, preached six years ago about this particular article of faith, and we're going to review what we believe is the scriptural way to observe the supper. Uh, there is a biblical protocol for this. It's not something that we just invented. Uh, we do find it in the Word of God, and I believe that we are to observe the supper as the Lord gave it. So this message will be a little bit different from other messages that I, I deliver because this is more of a teaching topic and uh, this will be more of an apologetic uh, defense of our doctrine. So it's our practice to observe the supper at the beginning of each quarter and that, in fact, is not something that's mandated by the Scriptures. The Scriptures don't tell us how often that we are to do this, but it does say that we are to do it. And so that is left up to uh, each individual church to decide the timing that they partake of the Lord's Supper. So we do observe it at the beginning of each quarter, and we've done it often enough that most of you are familiar with the way that we do it, but maybe you're not so familiar with the whys of how that we do it. So we're going to look into God's Word tonight, and we're going to read a portion of Scripture that is familiar to all of us. Uh, these are Paul's words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he was writing to the church at Corinth. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start reading at verse number 23. Read down to verse number 29. Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this time that we've come together for the observance of the supper. Lord, I do pray that you will bless in the message tonight. And what I have to say, I hope is received well by everyone who is here tonight. And we would understand why we do things like we do. And we do want to do things according to the scriptures that we observe in a way that you would have us to. So bless in the message and we give you the honor and the glory for all things tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin, first of all, by reading from our statement of faith. This is Article 14, and this concerns uh, baptism. That's the first part of this, and the second part is the Lord's Supper. So, Article number 14 of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life that it is prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper in which only the members of each particular local church by the sacred use of unleavened bread and the unfermented fruit of the vine are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ preceded always by self-examination. Now you notice there that there's only a short section that actually deals with the Lord's Supper But it's not our statement of faith that we appeal to in order to establish our doctrine, but rather we go to the Scripture itself. The statement of faith is simply a synopsis of the doctrines that we believe, and so they always have to appeal to the Scriptures for support. I I, I understand this, and I realize as we talk about this tonight, there is a a great deal of diversity of opinion. Uh, Sometimes people have opinions that are very long-held, But it doesn't matter how long that you hold an opinion and and how strongly that you may believe it, it has to be supported by the Scripture. And we're not going to do anything that we don't think that the Scriptures do support. So I encourage you, if you have disagreements with me this evening, that you just simply look at what the Bible has to say as we go through this and we try to explain the proper observance. Now I want to begin tonight, number one, is the place of the Lord's Supper. Very simply stated, the the place of the Lord's Supper is the church. W.J. Burgess, in his book, The Lord's Table, made a very important statement. He said, if all could understand that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, specifically and exclusively a church ordinance, it would clear up much confusion and do away with much criticism of the Baptist position regarding it. And I would have to say that I wholeheartedly agree with what Brother Burgess has to say here. And I also understand what he means when he says the Baptist position concerning the supper. And I'm also aware that there are many uh, modern-day Baptists who have changed the practice of the Lord's Supper. What they believe is uh, about the nature of the church, all of that is different. But when Burgess wrote this particular book, it was in 1957. That's a little over 50 years ago. And there has been a lot that has changed in uh, church practice 
since that time. But Baptists have historically taken a biblical perspective concerning this ordinance, and I believe that's where we do have to go to understand the way that God would have us to observe it. So Christ instituted the supper in the church, and that was among born-again believers of the church, and it's only among them that the supper can be celebrated. Jesus instituted the supper in the church, and we find that in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. It says there, Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And the twelve apostles that Jesus sat down with, those were the first church. Now, the first church was not established on the day of Pentecost, like many people believe, but it was established when Jesus chose out those twelve apostles, and then he organized them into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians, it tells us, and God hath set some in the church first apostles. Well, sometime later, maybe we'll take up an argument about when the church started, but I think it's very clear when we look into the Scriptures that the church was functioning. It had ordinances. It had baptism. It had the Lord's Supper. They had the gospel. They had membership in the church according to Acts chapter 1. All of that was before the day of Pentecost. And so Pentecost was actually the day of empowering the church. That was not the day that God organized the church. And so when Jesus sat down with the 12 apostles, that's when he was sitting down with his church. Now in the 26th verse of Matthew 26, we read, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And that was Jesus before the night of the crucifixion. And this is the actual place where he instituted this supper, which is to picture his death upon the cross. When we read the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, it's evident that the order of the commission and the Lord's Supper for the church is to be in the church and only in the church. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, I want you to go out, I want you to preach the gospel, I want you to make disciples, I want you to baptize them, and then teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And when he said make disciples, what he meant, and to baptize them, what he meant was to bring them into this relationship with the church, and observing all those things that he commanded would include the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, in all of the New Testament examples that we have, the Lord's Supper is placed in the church. And so I think that we can make a a scriptural argument out of this. We can use it as proof that the Lord's Supper was never observed outside of the church and it was never observed by anyone who was not a part of the church. And so that simply means that no one has the right to observe the supper outside of a church setting. And to do so would actually be to degrade the church because it lessens the importance of God's church when ordinances are, are observed without church authority. Well, when we say that the supper is to be observed in the church, I know that that doesn't answer all the questions because there are lots of differences of opinion about what that means. And so there are uh, basically three views on the observance of the supper. There's open communion and what we might call denominational communion, and there's also close communion. Now, I'm going to describe these very briefly to you now, and if you don't get all of that, all of it, it's okay. I mean, if you want to ask me about it later, I'm happy to explain it to you. But we're going to look at these three different views very briefly. First of all, open communion is not scriptural. 
Now, when we speak of open communion, or when people talk about this, what they basically mean is that any person is invited to partake of the supper. And that doesn't matter whether they're members of the church. It doesn't matter whether they've been baptized. It doesn't matter what group they affiliate with. As long as they call themselves Christian, they're invited to come. And that is the true meaning of open communion. Now, the Protestants have... Uh, modified that somewhat by stating that a person has to be baptized or, or at least they have to have the experience of what they call baptism. And so that would mean that if a person had infant baptism, then they would be eligible to partake of the supper. Well, I could think that you could see very quickly that Baptists would never be able to agree with that and we object, uh, reject that idea because we do not believe that infant baptism is actually true baptism. And then there are some Baptists who believe that open communion would be acceptable if the person had been baptized by immersion. And so that means that if you've been baptized by some other group other than Baptists, then you would be able to come into one of our churches and take the supper. In a moment, we're going to see why that's not correct, because there is a requirement for communion, which is doctrinal unity. And so if a person is not a Baptist, then we would very simply have to ask them, well, why aren't you a Baptist? And the reason that they're not would have to be some sort of doctrinal disagreement. And then we also believe in the proper authority for baptism. And so that means that a church has to have New Testament authority. It means that they must be in faith and practice like New Testament churches. So that would mean that not just anybody has the right to baptize. Baptism has to be administered under the proper authority. So it doesn't take much to figure out and to understand that if the, the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, then those who didn't have proper baptism would not be able to partake of the supper. So open communion from an, for an unbaptized person, that would not be according to the New Testament model. So therefore, it can't be scriptural. The next idea about communion is denominational communion, and that also is not scriptural. Now, when we speak of denominational communion, that would mean that some people restrict the communion to those who, only those who are members of Baptist churches, which, of course, would make the supper denominational. And there are many Baptists who do believe that, and among those are many of the independent fundamental churches, Southern Baptists, a lot of them also believe this. And so it means then, if you are a member of any Baptist church that is of like faith and order, then you could go to another Baptist church and then take the supper with them. Now, I don't believe that's scriptural either because it violates some very important principles that I'm going to explain in just a moment. Because if we believe, for one thing, if the church is local and visible and it's only to be observed among uh, members of each individual Baptist church, then to open that up to non-members would actually deny the very local church doctrine that we're teaching. And we would be, in effect, teaching what the Protestants teach, which is an invisible, uh, universal, invisible church. And, of course, that's not uh, consistent with the doctrines that we teach. So that would bring us then to the third form of communion, which I believe is the correct one, and that is close communion. Close communion is scriptural. Close communion means that the supper should be observed only among the members of each individual Baptist church, and that is, in fact, what our statement of faith maintains. Now, the word close means in close fellowship with one another, and that, of course, is particularly true for members of the same church body. So our statement of faith says on this, the Lord's Supper, in which only the members of each particular local church, by the sacred use of unleavened bread and the unfermented fruit of the vine, are to commemorate together. 
So why do we believe that? I mean, this is the hardest point that people have to overcome. So why do we believe this? What, What are the scriptural proofs of it? Well, number one is that the unity of doctrine vindicates close communion. Now, we go back to 1 Corinthians and the verses that immediately precede our text. In verse number 18 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And so one of the main stipulations that Paul has put here is the proper observance of the Lord's Supper has to be according to to the unity of doctrine. And so how could we say that we have unity of doctrine among people that we know nothing about, people that aren't a part of our church, and we certainly don't have unity of doctrine among Protestant churches and among those that are non-Baptist. And so the reason why that we are called a Baptist church, we're not a Methodist church, we're not the Assemblies of God, we're not Presbyterian, we're not a community church, it's because we are not united to them in the same doctrinal beliefs. And so how could we observe the Lord's Supper according to the Scriptures if we had in our same body, I mean, people present in the congregation who are not united to us doctrinally? What Paul says here, that uh, doctrine, uh, divisions about doctrine do not make for proper observance of the Supper. And he specifically said here, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, it's a very clear picture that the Word of God gives. I mean, if you, if you go on and study in, in 1 Corinthians, here's where we learn about the body of Christ that is not divided. And so if we are divided over doctrine, then we are breaking that, that picture. We're, we're destroying the picture that Christ has of a unified body. And so we can't come together and observe the Lord's Supper if we have divisions among us. Then the second reason that we do it this way is because church a discipline vindicates close communion. Now, one of the things that churches do very little of today is to practice discipline. But I want you to hear what the Bible says about this. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment, let's look here and see what, what Paul has to say about discipline concerning the supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. He says, But now I have written unto you, Not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not judge that them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among you that wicked person. Now, let me tell you what Paul is talking about in verse number 12. The church has no judgment. And it has no jurisdiction over anyone who is outside of the church. What we can only do is to judge those who are part of our body. And so, how could we know the lifestyle of a person who, for instance, may just decide to walk in off the street one night at a communion service and then wants to take the supper with us? We don't know them doctrinally. We don't know anything about them morally. And we have no jurisdiction over their lives. And so the only way that we could control what Paul says in these verses is through the practice of close communion. 
Now, you may know someone who wants to participate in the Lord's Supper, and they don't do any of the things that Paul talks about in this Scripture. I mean, uh, I mean, they're not fornicators, and they're not extortioners, and all these things that he talks about. Well, would that mean then, because they don't do those things, uh, they're good, morally upright people, that they should be able to partake of the Supper with us? And the answer to the question would be no, because it violates the principle. The principle of church discipline is that we have jurisdiction only over those that are a part of the body. And so if you have a person who's not subject to our doctrinal positions and not subject to the discipline of the church, then they couldn't be eligible to partake of the supper with us. Now notice also what he says in verse 11. He says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunker or an extortioner with, some, with, uh, with such an one not to eat. Now that last phrase says, with such an one not to eat. And most often, hardly, you hardly find any Bible expositor that doesn't agree that what he's speaking of here is the Lord's Supper. But there are some who say, well, no, that's not speaking of the Lord's Supper. It's talking about a common meal. Well, if Paul says that you shouldn't eat common meals with these people, then how much more wrong would it be to partake of the Lord's Supper with them? And so you see, there are restrictions on taking the Supper. Not just anybody is invited. Doctrine and discipline play a major role in determining the participants. Then thirdly, we would notice that the New Testament order vindicates close communion. And what I mean by this would be the order that was actually used by the apostles. It leads only to close communion. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 2. This is on the day of Pentecost. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now there we see that the New Testament order is salvation, baptism, continuance in doctrine and fellowship, and then the breaking of bread. Now, those that were baptized, according to verse number 41, these people are added to the church. And then it says that they continued with a fellowship with the church and of the breaking of bread. Now, there's only one church that was in existence at that time. That was the church at Jerusalem. And all those that were there were members of that one church. They were baptized into that fellowship. And the supper was partaken of only by those who are members of that church. And so you see, we we don't have any scriptural proof or basis for an open communion, not for denominational communion, but we only have this for close communion. That's the only way that it can be scriptural. Now, that's a difficult doctrine. And let me make it just a little bit more personal to you. When we ask that only members participate in the Lord's Supper, we are not denigrating anybody's character. We're not saying that there are other people who aren't saved. We're not saying that we're better than any other Christians. We're not accusing anyone of any evil practices. We're only saying that we cannot invite anyone other than the Lord would invite to the table of the individual church. We're going here by the New Testament and what the New Testament order is. And so what we believe about this is that people who aren't members of this church ought to take the Lord's Supper in their own Baptist body. And so if they're not saved and they're not members of a church, or if they are saved, I should say, but they're not members of a church, then we certainly wouldn't want them to take the Lord's Supper because they would be doing the very thing that Paul says we should not do, taking of the supper unworthily, because then would be in disobedience to the Lord. 
And so what we're doing simply is following New Testament practice. And we're open enough about it to say this, that if you want to become a member of Berean Baptist Church, we gladly welcome you. And we want you to come in to be a part of our church. And and you can do that through a testimony of your faith and of your baptism. Now, when I first became pastor of the church here, I noticed that there were unbaptized children that partook of the supper. I noticed that there were unbaptized adults and there were unbelievers who were taking of the supper. I saw non-members that took the supper. And folks, I believe that if we're going to, to practice the Lord's Supper properly, we have to do it according to this New Testament model. Now, I have three other points that we need to get to very quickly tonight. Uh, I spent most of my time on that first point because that's the one that's hardest to understand. And again, I would say I'm more than happy to sit down with anyone and explain this further. And I do want everyone to understand we simply do not think that we're better than somebody else because we do it this way. We do it this way because this is what God says. Now, we discussed in the place of the supper. Secondly, we need to discuss the prerequisites of the Lord's Supper. And I've already briefly touched on these, and so I won't spend a lot of time here. Now, I want to tell you there are two prerequisites, assuming that we already understand that people that are saved must be the only ones who can come to the supper. You obviously could not be an unbeliever and come. So we're going to give you two prerequisites. The first one is baptism in water. And I say baptism because there are some who make a point of saying baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to discuss tonight whether there is or there is not a baptism of the Holy Spirit today. But we do know this, there is definitely baptism in water. And a person who is eligible for participation in the Lord's Supper must have been baptized in water. The word baptize means to immerse. And so that means they must be immersed. Sprinkling does not count. Effusion does not count. If you're not familiar with that term, it simply means pouring water over the head of someone. That doesn't count. The scriptures teach us that baptism in the word itself is by immersion. And that's the example that we have in the New Testament. And so that would mean, again, that uh, this person must be a believer. It can't be that they were baptized as a baby by any method. They must be baptized believers. Those are the only ones that are actually able to participate. And then if we go back to the scriptural order that we just discussed, that baptism comes before the admission to the supper. So those that we see in Acts chapter 2 that received the word were baptized. They were then admitted into the fellowship and then to the breaking of bread. So you don't have unbaptized people that come to the supper. Secondly, it's membership in the church. All believers were baptized, and they were baptized into the fellowship of the church. And so by necessity, that would show us that they are all church members. There is no such thing as a person being baptized and not being attached to the church. Now, I know that there are people that practice that, but you can't find that in the New Testament. People that are baptized become a part of the Lord's church. And so the model is that baptized believers are all part of the church. Now, sometimes you'll find that discipline has been exercised by a church. And so you have a baptized believer, but they've been put out of a church for something that they've done wrong. Well, that would mean that they're not eligible for the supper. And if you are a baptized Christian and you're not a part of the church, 
according to a New Testament model, the only way that you could actually get that way is to be disciplined out of the church. And so if you were a part of a church and you just stopped going to church, and so the church dropped you from their membership, their membership, that is a form of discipline. And that would mean that you wouldn't be eligible. So church membership is a necessity. Now thirdly tonight, we have the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And in our text... Paul gives us the purpose. He says in verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So here then is the purpose for the Lord's Supper. It is to memorialize the death of Christ. Now Jesus specifically said that in the institution. He said in in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 25, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so he says, he tells us, it is a remembrance for what he's done for us on the cross. Now there are two things that are remembered in the supper. And they correspond to the elements that we take. The first one is that the bread represents his body. And so when we take the bread and we break it, that symbolizes that Christ's body was broken for us. And the bread that we use is unleavened bread. And that's because leaven in the Bible is a type of sin. Jesus had no sin, and so the bread that we eat is unleavened bread. And that's why we don't have wonder bread when I open up this. And we don't take that. We don't have premium crackers or anything like that. This is unleavened. And that's because this pictures the Lord's body that had no sin. Now the next thing that is remembered is his blood. And the cup represents his blood. And so in each of our Lord's Supper observances, we have a cup that's filled with grape juice. And that represents the blood of Jesus. Now, there's a scripture that I read often from 1 Peter when we celebrate the supper. Peter says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so we say then that the blood of Jesus Christ is the actual purchase price for our sins. And without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no forgiveness of our sins. No person could ever be saved without the blood of Christ. And that cup uh, also represents the intense suffering of Christ. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he literally suffered the hell that we would experience if we went there. And so that means that the sacrifice of Christ must be an infinite, eternal sacrifice because that corresponds to the infinite sufferings in punishment in hell. And so the payment then has to be commensurate with the punishment. And only Christ's blood is of infinite worth. We have nothing that is of infinite worth except Christ's blood that can be given for sin. Now I want to address one more question concerning this about why we use grape juice. Now there is an... Uh, a lot of argument about this, and we don't have the time to go into all of it tonight. But why do we use grape juice instead of wine? Now, as you know, there are a lot of people that use wine in the Lord's Supper. So why do we do this? Well, one reason is because the Bible never connects wine with the Lord's Supper. In fact, when the Lord's Supper is mentioned, it's always the word cup or it is the fruit of the vine. It never says wine in conjunction with the supper. And then secondly, the Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse number 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. 
And I would, I would ask you, is Christ's blood, could it be filled with deceit and mockery? Wine can never represent the blood of Christ. Then thirdly, wine has gone through a process of fermentation. Do you know what fermentation is? Well, it's a leavening process. In fact, leavening and fermentation actually mean the same thing. They're synonymous terms. So fermentation is a rotting process. The juice of the grape is broken down so that it's no longer pure juice. Now, what does Jesus say about that particular part? Well, in Psalm 1610, which we read this morning, we have this messianic prediction also given in the New Testament, the very same words. And in speaking of Jesus, the Bible says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Christ never saw corruption. And so we could never use rotten fermented wine in the Lord's Supper and say that that represents his blood. Christ never saw corruption. And so we're not going to use fermented wine. We're never going to let that touch our lips when we're in a commemoration of the Lord's Supper. And I hope you don't do it any other time either. Now, this is not an issue among most Baptists. In this part of the country, you won't, really won't hear much said about this particular part of it. But where I come from, there are many, many Baptist churches that use wine in the Lord's Supper. And I think it's unscriptural. And then there's another question I get about this from time to time. And that is, is it all right to use white grape juice in the Lord's Supper instead of red grape juice? And, you know, you wonder sometimes why people come up with such questions. But I'm not a legalist concerning this. And, and, but I will say this, that if we're going to have a picture of the Lord's Supper or, or what Christ did, if we're going to have a symbol of his blood, then it would make sense to me that we would have the, the grape juice that's in color similar to, the bl- to blood. So if you take one of these cups and you spill it on the carpet, as some people do, uh, you spill it out on the carpet or on your clothes, you notice that it has that dark red stain. And what else could picture or represent the blood of Christ better than that? So uh, though I'm not a legalist, I said I, I think it's probably best that we would use uh, the color of grape juice that we're using. Now then I want to go on to the last area, and that's the preparation for the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're a member of the church, you're well familiar with this. Paul wrote in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So it's the duty of every baptized believer, every member of the church, to examine himself before he comes to the Lord's table. And in that process, you make sure that all of your sins are confessed before God. And so, every time before we take the Lord's Supper, we pause and we have personal prayer and we have, we have examination of our hearts and the confession of our sins because if we don't do that, we can be guilty of eating unworthily. And there is a penalty for eating unworthily. In fact, Paul says it in verse 29 of the chapter. He says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, the penalty is damnation, according to this 11th chapter. And Paul says, well, that's the reason why some of you are sick. Some of you have even died. And that's because the manner in which they had sinfully abused the partaking of this supper. Now, I don't want you to experience that. And so I want to make sure that you do this, that you're, you're careful about this, confessing your sins before you come to the Lord's table. And that requirement alone would be enough to tell us that no unsaved person could ever come because he would heap damnation on himself by taking the supper when he has not 
confessed his sins to Christ and received him as Savior. So there are three questions that you need to ask yourself in your personal examination. Number one is, am I right with God? And that means, is there anything hindering my life? Is there some sin that I've committed? Then I need to confess that I need to get rid of it. I need to make sure that I'm right with God. The second thing is, am I right with the church? And being right with the church means, do you support your church with your presence? Do you do it with your work? Do you do it with your tithes? And it also means, are you in tune with the pastor? And so if you can kick me around and have me for Sunday dinner after church on Sunday morning, then you can't be right with the church. You can't be right with the church and not be right with me as the leader and the pastor of the church. Now, thirdly, am I right with my fellow Christians? Now, if your favorite activity is to get on the phone and gossip, then you're not right with your fellow Christians. And if you can look across one of the aisles tonight and you find that you have something against another brother or sister, then you're not right with your fellow Christians. You know, I've been in churches that are divided right down the aisles. And there's all kinds of broken relationships. There's all kinds of things going on. Uh, There's all kinds of family squabbles and jealousies and disagreements that ought not to be there. And so before you partake of the Lord's Supper, I I think there are some nights, even in our church, where there ought to be some crossing of the aisles. And there ought to be some people asking for forgiveness for things that they've done to other members. This is very important. Are you right with other members of your church? And if you're not, then you need to ask forgiveness of that and make it right. So preparation is necessary for the Lord's Supper. Now let me make one more comment and then we'll be through tonight. There is no excuse not to take the Lord's Supper. Now, from time to time, down through the years, I've been acquainted with Christians who thought it was a noble thing if they refused to partake the supper. I mean, they realize that there's some sin in their life, and they're not right with God. They're not right with a fellow Christian. They're not right with the church. And so they think, well, the thing to do is not to take the supper. And that relieves all responsibility. Well, that's not true. I mean, there is no excuse because if you have these things wrong, what you must do is get those things right. You are to partake of the Lord's Supper. You're to correct the problems. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. And Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. And so a question would be, if you refuse to remember Christ, would that be right? Is it right to refuse to show the Lord's death until he comes again? It's not. And so you have to judge yourself and correct the problem. We are commanded to be in fellowship. You must be right with God, with the church, and with your fellow Christians. And then I would add to this, if you're not a member of the church, join the church. And then you partake in honoring Christ's death. Now thank the Lord that he's given us this wonderful privilege of celebrating his death We thank the Lord that we are his children and also that he has given us this unique privilege that we can be members of his church. Now tonight, the message has been obviously to the church and what I've said tonight, there may be some of you that are not in full agreement with what I've taught here, but I do encourage you to study this diligently. I I encourage you to take your Bible and make make a scriptural assessment of this. Don't make a personal one. Make a scriptural assessment of what the scripture says. So the Lord's Supper is a great privilege. And we do thank the Lord for all that he's done for us. So I would ask you, I mean, do you know the Lord tonight? I mean, has he touched your heart? And do you understand what the supper represents? 
The truth is, you can know him. You can become his child. And you can also become a part of his church. So I hope you've learned something from this. I mean, teaching the Lord's word is is always edifying to us. The learning process is is always good for us. I mean, we're, we're always profited by knowing what the word of God says. Well, now that we've learned about the scriptural observance of the supper, it's time to put what we learned into practice. So I'd like for our deacons to come, if you would, please, and we're going to prepare for the distribution of the elements. And I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and I'll call your attention once again to the same passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if everyone would stand with me, and um, I, I don't know if we can squeeze everybody into the middle or not. <laughs> 